Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey everybody, thanks for listening in. This is Shane Claiborne, and I'm so glad that we are together. I like talking about important stuff <laughs> on this show, uh, and especially talking about faith and, and why it matters, how it connects to the world that we're living in right now. I've been uh, reflecting on some of the themes of my my newest book, Rethinking Life. But don't worry if you missed the last few episodes or something, you can go back and hear them. But today, um, I wanted to build on this conversation uh, that we were talking about how all life is made in the image of God. All, all human beings are made in the image of God. All of creation um, is holy and sacred. And in Genesis, God says over and over, it is good. God made uh, the trees and said, it is good. God made the mountains and the sea and said, it is good. And then God made human beings and said, this is real good. And adds like, this is better than good. And that we, you know, God breathed into the dirt to make humans. And that word human um, comes from the same root as as the earth and um so you know this this kind of fusion of the stuff of earth breathed with the life and uh, beauty of god's heaven and um and and you know as we were thinking about that um martin buber who was the you know brilliant european philosopher um he speaks of of how you can see a person in two different ways. You can look at the person and see them as a material object, what, what Buber calls an it. Or you can look into a person and really m- move into the sacredness of their humanity so much that they become a thou. So we can see into the sort of the holy of holies of a human being and, and see the image of God in them. As Dorothy Day, uh, the founder of the Catholic Worker, said, the only true atheist is the one who is not able to see the image of God in the face of another human being. You look into a little child or you look into someone that's struggling on the streets and we we should be able to see uh, the image of um, our creator. So, you know, in the midst of all that, there's this connectedness. And I I had told the story in the last episode about being in Calcutta, India, and looking into the eyes of this man um, in um, a a colony of folks who had leprosy and skin diseases. And I was was, uh, uh, treating this man's wound, and he said this sacred word, um, uh, namaste, which the best translation that we have is the spirit of God in me. Uh, honors the spirit of God that I see in you. This sense of interconnectedness and the, the the Holy One in me sees the Holy One in you. 
so the, at the heart of our faith is, I believe, this this sense that uh, it's not just about having new ideas, new theology, but being a Christian is about having new eyes. It's being able to see people differently, right? To see the image of God in every person. Henry Nouwen, uh, the great, um, he was a Catholic priest and became a part of uh, the um, large communities where they took care of folks with special needs. They actually kind of took care of each other. They were helping each other. And he left Harvard and went to that community. And uh, one of the things he says is, um, in those who um, do harm, we see our own capacity to do harm. In the saints, we see our own capacity to love and to do holy things. We're, we're uh, in Nowen's words, in the face of the oppressed, I can recognize my own face. And in the hands of the oppressor, I recognize my own hands. Their flesh is my flesh. Their blood is my blood. Their pain is my pain. Their smile is my smile. So we're all equally made from the dirt, but we're also equally breathed uh, that that breath of God in us by, so that we have the sacredness of God. Every single person is equally made in the image of God. So we can see in other people our own brokenness, and we can see our own belovedness. I, I think there's something to this idea that we need to know that we are both beloved and broken, you know, that we are uh, made in the image of God, but we're also uh, sinners in in need of of a savior, uh, and, and sometimes we get that wrong. You know, there's a lot of people that know that they are beautiful; <laughs> they know that real well, uh, but they've forgotten that they are also sinful. And uh, and there's other folks that that their whole life they've been told how broken and how um, unlovable they are, and they you know we all need to be reminded that we are beloved. I mean, I think that's part of the good news is that. Uh, the world was worth saving. You are worth saving. Is it old verse from John three sixteen says, God, uh, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. So now this is what, what I've, I've really felt from spending time with folks that are recovering from drug addiction, substance addictions, alcohol and drug use, um, that we're all recovering from something. And a part of this is being able to confess, uh, the places where we've fallen short and, um, and, and help each other become a little bit more like the person we'd like to be. So in the murderers, in those who have murdered, we see our own um, capacity to hate or be held hostage to revenge. And in those who are addicted, we we see our own addictions. We begin to look in the mirror and say, what, what are the things that continue to control me? In the saints, we uh, we, we catch a glimpse of our, our own holiness, our, our own capacity uh, to love and show compassion and justice. There's also a word, you know, in, in South Africa, uh, there's a whole concept of Ubuntu. I don't know if you bumped into this, but um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, rest his soul, passed away a few years ago. It was an amazing, uh, an, an amazing uh, follower of Jesus. And he, he says that this idea of Ubuntu, uh, this South African idea, um, is that my humanity is caught up, inextricably bound up in yours. Um, Desmond Tutu says, we, we belong in a bundle of life. So we, we say as a, a person 
is a person through other persons. And th- this is kind of what Dr. King also talked about. He talked about this inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. So whatever affects one person directly affects other folks indirectly. As long as there's poverty in the world, Dr. King says, no man can be totally rich, even if he has a billion dollars. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. So that that idea in Corinthians, right, that says if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Come on. That's 1 Corinthians 12. And if if one part of the, the body rejoices, we rejoice. There's also that idea in Hebrews that we are to remember those in prison as if we were in prison with them, as if we were locked up with them. That's how deeply we should feel connected to those who are incarcerated. So there's something to this idea of feeling the connectedness that God has uh, kind of bound up in each of us. I mean, this whole gospel, the whole Bible is a story of God creating humanity in God's image and God being uh, a plurality of oneness, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's kind of this divine dance, as my brother Richard Rohr says, of the community of God. So we have uh, not, you know, just... God the Father, but we've got the Spirit, the Son, the the Creator all together creating us in that image. And that's why I think we're longing for community. Uh, There's the sense that it's not real good until there's two humans helping one another. And it says we're not meant to be alone. Uh, So the entire story of Scripture is this uh, God creating uh, a new community, a new humanity. Uh, a society of love. That's what the Exodus story is about, right? This new people that are being formed uh, out of the empire that had enslaved them. We look in the New Testament, you see like two or three of us, when we gather in God's name, God is with us. Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs. It's something that we are meant to be uh, connected to each other. And so now, you know, I want to transition just a little bit in this to uh I'm, I'm going to talk about something serious, y'all. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about a word that might seem a little outdated or archaic, sin. But I, I, there's some things that I think we we need to to uh, find new ways of expressing, and there's some I think that we need to dust off, and we need to uh, have sort of fresh ears to hear, as Jesus said. Now, check this out. When do you think? the word sin first appears in the Bible. I I would have thought, you know, as in the Garden of Eden, when we think of the original sin or the fall, when Adam and Eve disobey God and they eat of the forbidden fruit. That's what I would have thought. But it's interesting because as I was researching for this new book, Rethinking Life, I found that the first time the word sin appears in Scripture isn't in connect, connection to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but it's in the inaugural murder, that first murder where Cain kills his brother Abel. That's the that's the first time that sin appears in, in, in the scripture. And let, let that sink in a little bit, right? That the, certainly 
we began to lose our way when you know Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. But the fruit, the 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 outgrowth of that, the first thing that happens outside the Garden of Eden is violence. It's murder. It's the destruction of the sacred image of God in another person. This brother Cain killing uh, Abel. So as we, we think of that, uh, murder is the first thing, you know, the first time that we see the word sin. But then there's some interesting things that my my uh, Jewish friends especially have helped me to understand about this script uh, or this, this text in Genesis uh, chapter 4. So it says, um, the Lord confronts Cain and says, what have you done? And then God utters, you know, one of the most profound statements in the Bible, your brother, your, your brother's blood, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, here's what's really interesting as you kind of dig a little deeper in this. The Hebrew word for blood is plural. Um, it, it, it's plural. It's not just one person's blood, but it's any time blood is shed, it cries out to God from the ground. Now, check this out. The other thing that's interesting is in this blood cries out to God is that the the uh, verb is not past tense, but present tense. In fact, the, the in, in the Hebrew, these are bound up together. So it is timeless. The, the blood cries out to God from the ground, and it always cries out to God. And it wasn't just Cain uh, killing Abel. It wasn't just Abel's blood that cries out to God from the ground, but all the blood that we've shed throughout history cries out to God. Killing and violence are the beginning. That That's where we see sin, and that blood that we continue to spill over the centuries continues to cry out to God. It speaks to God. It, it, God hears any time we shed the blood of another human being. So you think Michael Brown in Ferguson, that blood cries out to God from the ground. I think of, you know, that if you, as you remember back to that terrible incident that really sparked so much of the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement and the so the, the the movement for racial justice we see sweeping our entire globe right now. Um, his body was left out in the street for hours. And I remember we, we went out there and we saw the street that they had preserved that space. And, and you had this real sense that um, that Michael Brown's blood cries out to God. Ahmaud Arbery shot while he was running in Georgia. His blood cries out to God from the ground. Breonna Taylor, all of these folks whose life has been crushed, their their blood cries out to God from the ground. Uh, and it, it's interesting that um, Abel, in the story of Cain and Abel in the, in, in the scripture, um, Abel doesn't have any words in the biblical narrative. Like he, he doesn't speak. We don't have any account of Abel speaking in the Bible. The only time he speaks is when his blood cries out to God. His blood has power beyond his life. And, you know, I think of uh, George Floyd in, in Minneapolis as, as his life was crushed out of him. And his little six-year-old daughter uh, said, Daddy, change the world. 
And of course, she wasn't romanticizing his murder, but simply echoing the fact that his voice didn't stop when he was killed. But his his cry, I can't breathe, that same cry of uh, Eric Garner when he was killed by police in New York, that, that cry is a cry that comes from the earth to God, and it echoes throughout our souls now as we think of the, the so many in the streets that are marching for racial justice saying, I can't breathe. So as you keep reading, you know, this, this idea that the blood cries out to God from the ground, you have the sense that, I mean, all of the blood of native peoples that was shed on these lands that were colonized and stolen. We think of all the blood of enslaved people, uh, enslaved Africans that are were, whose bodies were taken, stolen and beaten and whipped and killed and lynched and terrorized. That blood cries out to God from the ground. And it keeps crying. And that's why we're called to be a part of this healing of the earth, healing of the sins of, of history. And as you keep reading Genesis, one of the things that's apparent is that it says uh, in Genesis 6 that the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight. And listen to this, that it was full of violence. So when God intervenes and and sort of reboots, even like in the story of the flood. I've come to think of that as, as God saving us from ourselves, that, that God is saving us from our own violence and our own suicidal sin that's taking the lives of others and crushing uh, you know our own souls. So as we think about sin, I, there's a story I want to tell you. Um, uh years and years ago, I was doing an internship. It was actually up in Toronto, Canada. And there was a pastor there that um, he asked me, you know, he had this look of uh, stump the teacher question, you know, and he said, why do you think that God hates sin? And, you know, I, I thought for a minute, but then I sort of instinctively said, well, because we're breaking God's laws, we're disobeying God. Uh, and he gave me this, this uh, kind of curious smirk <laughs> kind of like eh, you know keep going on that and so i said you know when we sin um uh we it it hurts god and he kind of tilted his head a little bit more and and uh and then he said um do you think it hurts god because it hurts us and it really struck me as i was you know list talking with this pastor friend of mine um that God hates sin because God loves us. And sin is destroying people. It, it, it hurts people. Um, it's one of the best lessons I've learned about sin is not just that we're, you know, disobeying, disregarding God's laws, disobeying God, that we're um, disobedient. I mean, all that's true, but I guess, but you know, the, the God, like a loving parent, doesn't want to see us hurt ourselves or hurt other people. And so that's a real different way of thinking about sin as, than I heard growing up. You know, I, I used to hear, I mean, we did this thing, y'all, um, called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. <laughs> it was this theatrical performance. I guess you could call it 
theater. It was a really bad skits, really. And and um, you know, you the, we would all be on a bus, and the bus would crash, and the demons would come and drag all of the kids that didn't know Jesus. All the non Christian kids would be dra- they they were dragged to hell by the demons. And we had pyrotechnics. I mean, this was intense. And my friend's dad was the devil, and he was really good. And so, I mean, it was literally scaring all all of us. We, they would give an altar call, and I mean, people would get born again, again, and again because of how scary these skits were. And there came a point, though, for me where I started going, I don't think I chose God because I'm scared to death of hell or because I want crowns in heaven and streets of gold and mansions. I chose God because God is so good. I fell in love with Jesus. And there's some forms of theology that create a God that's really hard to love, but really easy to fear. And I I know a God that's not just easy to fear, but that's so wonderful that God is actually the embodiment of love, right? God is love. That's what scripture says. So I want to reclaim sin, you know, as this not not just this thing that televangelists and hell obsessed pastors talk about, you know, the, the hellfire and damnation stuff, but um I think that hell is suffer is suffering the inability to love anymore. It's this idea that we are so far from God that, as Dostoevsky says this, what is hell? The suffering of being no longer able to love. That's Dostoevsky. So you you sort of think like C.S. Lewis may very well be right that hell is locked from the inside, that we begin to lock ourselves into this loneliness and this, uh, and 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 all the sin is about trying to help us love and care for each other. So divorce is awful, not just because we break a promise, but because it tears people's hearts apart. Greed hurts people. Lust hurts people. Rage hurts people, exploitation, war, drugs, these are all, all these things, promiscuity, all this, it hurts people. So sin is ultimately about love. This whole thing is a love story, y'all. God's love for us, our love for each other, our love for ourselves. The whole law can be summed up in one word, love, love. So in this new book, Rethinking Life, I keep coming back to the refrain of what does love require of us? When we think about immigration or the death penalty, the environment, um, all these things like love is the framework. So it's not fear of scarcity, fear of other people, but even on our social policies, what would it look like if love was the compelling force around our immigration policy, our welcoming asylum seekers? So what happened in original sin is that human beings took their eyes off love. Sin is narcissistic and self-centered, but love is sacrificial and others-centered. So we see the world not just for what we can exploit from it, but the earth, nature, animals, even people are indisposable. Love, as scripture says, always protects 
Love cherishes. It preserves life. That's what love does. And whenever sin destroys life, love heals the wound of it. So if God is love, then hell is a loveless place. And heaven is where love rules supreme. So scripture is true. We're not just to wait until we die to experience heaven, but we're to bring heaven to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. We are to destroy every expression of hell and death and sin on earth. Come on, y'all. That scripture that says the gates of hell will not prevail against you, that's Jesus' promise to the church. That hell, that sin, that uh, the, the lack of love in the world, none of that will prevail. Love is a force. It's a force. And God's love is to live in us. We're to be that force in the world. So hell doesn't stand a chance because there are people committed to loving our neighbors, loving the earth, loving one another. So may it be so. I mean, that's my prayer. You know, when Jesus says that they will know that we are Christians by our love. And the scripture says, God is love. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God is made evident, manifest among us. It's a love story. So anything that destroys life, what do you think about that? This idea that sin is, is falling short of what love requires of us. It's not just some random laws that are put into place, but laws that are meant to protect us. So thanks for listening in. We get to do this every week. Uh, we're talking through this idea of the sacredness of life and what it means to champion life. And if you've not connected with us at Red Letter Christians, we've got a movement happening of folks that want a, a, a Christianity that looks like love again, that loves like Jesus. Uh, and so if you go to redletterchristians.org, you can sign up and get, we, we have daily devotionals. We've got different um, things happening each month, a book club and prayer at the beginning of each month. Um, if you want to support us, you can do that online. But more than anything, we want you to know that you're not alone and that Jesus has survived the embarrassing things that we Christians have done in his name. So keep leaning into Jesus and thanks for listening. I'll uh, talk to you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.